Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So it's been a pretty action-packed few weeks for me on social media. For those of you that have not been following, there was a storm in a pericardial teacup. For my thoughts on the saga, visit my Instagram feed, where there's an Instagram live video. So it's a pretty unique experience, and the research for me wants to describe the situation understand the antecedent conditions and get some purchase on the underlying beliefs and intentions when colleagues make implausible and sometimes bizarre claims and also reflect on our reaction to those claims and perhaps how we can engineer a more productive response. As such, I'm going to follow this trail and in addition to this episode, there are episodes planned with Carly Martini examining the phenomenon of pseudoscience, and also more outsider episodes where guests relay their own experiences and outcomes of engaging with colleagues who hold such implausible beliefs and make such poorly evidenced claims, which can only be seen to map to the most distorted view of a biological reality. So I'm on a bit of a quest, for the next few episodes at least, to try and understand how to approach small t truth claims, which are used to describe what seems like an objective biological reality, but come from seemingly completely different epistemologies, and play by a different set of rules than that of the biological reality in which they're located. So I'm eager to find out how we can talk with colleagues that seem to hold significant differences in the foundational aspects of healthcare, and what it means to be a health professional such as the nature of evidence, logic, ethics, and what constitutes intellectually honest argumentation. Just to declare and reflect on my own position, I'm not a walking, talking positivist or strident empiricist. Far from it. I most certainly do consider and embrace the plurality of truths which comes from the social construction of knowledge but as it relates to the social world. So for me, I cannot see how this sense of relativism can extend to the natural world or the biological reality which brutally confronts us every second of our lives, whether we like it or not, literally with every breath we take and every time our left ventricle contracts. So I may be guilty here of epistemological blurring or straddling different paradigms, but clearly, as with many of us, My position is evolving, and it's only through more critical self-reflection and more conversations like these that I might be able to iron out any wrinkles in my position or even change it completely. So please subscribe to the podcast and consider supporting the show via Patreon. And as always, a big thank you to those of you already doing one or both those things. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Jack Chu and Professor Dave Newell. Jack is an MSK physio and broadcaster from the north of England and was the mind behind the Phenomenal Physio Matters podcast, 
which has been a huge inspiration for the Words Matter podcast. He also leads the incredibly successful pan-professional MSK conference, Therapy Live, as well as being the director of MSK Reform. Jack keeps his hand in clinically at Choose Health headquarters in South Manchester, and he's recently been elected as a council member for the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. Dave holds positions of Professor of Integrated Musculoskeletal Healthcare and Director of Research at AECC University College, as well as Visiting Research Fellow at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton. He spent the last 30 years teaching and generating research in chiropractic institutions, holding the position of Research Director in two other chiropractic programmes in the UK and Australia. Dave's published extensively in areas relevant to MSK conditions and the chiropractic profession. His contemporary areas of research interests lie in contextual factors in the therapeutic encounter, the therapeutic alliance, and the alignment of the chiropractic profession with the national health system. Like Jack, Dave is a podcaster and is one of the hosts of the I Care Chirocast, an international podcast hosting discussions with leaders in the chiropractic profession. And Dave and I spoke way back in August 2020, on episode 15, where we touched on the dogma and ideology which permeates through corners of our respective professions. So take a listen for further context around this topic. Another relevant episode is my recent talk with the philosophers of science, Dr. Eleanor Rocker and Dr. Saul Perez-Gonzalez about biological mechanisms and how we can judge the plausibility of such mechanistic claims. This was episode 69 from March this year. So in this episode, we speak about the growing phenomenon of calling out the falsehoods made by professional colleagues on social media. We ask if this is effective, and whether there is an obligation to do this, and with whom does the obligation lie. We talk about what constitutes a nonsense claim, and the gradations of bizarreness and implausibility. We then ask, what is the most productive way to respond to such seemingly ludicrous claims? We talk about the extent to which healthcare professionals can hold and perpetuate such beliefs, and the ethics and harms in holding or espousing such implausible beliefs. And finally we discuss how some practitioners seem to embody and fall in love with such ideas and beliefs and the common situation where some clinicians are unable or not prepared to separate their ideas from their professional selves and identity, making it almost impossible to play the ball and not the person. So this was such an enjoyable conversation, and only time will tell as to whether we achieved our mission of at least beginning to make sense of some of the truths and their plausibility in healthcare, and I'm grateful for Jack and Dave for sharing their own valuable insights. So I bring you Jack Chu and Professor Dave Newell. Jack and Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Second time. Amazing. Yeah, kind of first time for Jack, but yet we've been on each other's podcasting we've chatted we've chatted before now, yeah. not, uh, this is an honor for me it's definitely my debut on the podcast but yeah following great footsteps he's a veteran now is dave so he knows the game <laughs> veteran in more than one way 
So thanks both for joining me. I suppose your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to to help me and hopefully our listeners kind of make sense of how we interact with the more unusual ideas or claims made by colleagues. And those claims just seem completely at odds with any reasonable interpretation or reading of the literature or even have any plausibility to, to begin to have a sensible discussion around it. And, you know, it's, it's reasonably well known, I think. Maybe it's not well known at all, but this is off the back of a, a kind of Facebook saga, which happened a week or two ago about some claims made uh, within an Australian Facebook group, which were pretty unusual by anyone's standards about being able to palpate the pericardium and influence pericardium through manual palpation for the good of the person to alleviate their suffering. And so that was a bit of a storm in a teacup. I don't want to rehash that. It's on a Facebook or Instagram live, which I did the other day. But clearly, I think my understanding is there's, uh, so I was evicted from this group. Subsequently, there's a, a kind of spirited discussion took took place of which I think there's three or four hundred comments, as far as I know, the latest screenshots being sent to me. Um, but clearly, there's something to discuss. I mean, there's a phenomenon there to try and get some handle on and some kind of purchase on. And so you, I chose you both really because just to offer two kind of rich perspectives, differing perspectives. Dave, you from chiropractic, the caveat is you're not a chiropractor. I'm sure you have to say that to everyone you meet. <laughs> and Jack, who is a physio, but isn't really a physio, but spans across MSK. And I think that's how I kind of recognize you as just your ability to, to kind of have your little tentacles across <laughs> HP and across MSK. So just to value your perspectives to help me make sense of this seemingly strange situation where it, it, I find it difficult to have, to begin to engage with some of these ideas from colleagues and how I, I potentially made a mess of it in this occasion. So yeah, looking to, to learn from you guys. So thanks very much. No worries. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really looking forward to getting stuck into it. So you you guys will be known to, to, to most listeners, but just briefly introduce yourself, what you're currently doing, your, your backgrounds and how you describe what you do. You go ahead, Jack. I think one of the things I suppose I feel like I want to introduce myself with there is that Ollie's like wanted to make a joke about me not being really a proper physio. And I think that's part of what is amusing about how I have retained my professional license to practice physiotherapy. I don't cling very tightly to uh, my professional badge or often uh, joke about not caring about what flavor of certificate is on your wall. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm part of what I think is a growing movement of people that feel that we draw from a musculoskeletal evidence base, as well as a rich history of various different professions of which we should know about and work with. And that fundamentally those identities, if you interrogate them, should dissolve rather than cement. And I think that that's why that came up. But I'm, I'm a physio by background and often describe myself as such for that reason. And I work in musculoskeletal practice in private practice in the UK. Also have um, a podcast um well, I don't anymore, do I? I, I, res- I retired the Physio Matters podcast technically. I've now bought the domain name, by the way, Physio Matters. It's now a branch of Words Matter. I hope not. It's cheeky. <laughs> that would be very cheeky. But um, yeah, I had a, had a fairly popular podcast um, that, that remains in some form. Um, and we, we run a company called Physio Matters, which discusses all things MSK, really, and, and run conferences and events and, and really been someone that just promotes critical thinking, not just on the professional issues, but like where might 
these things intersect with culture? How do we recognize? Because I think that's going to be one of the things that comes up, right? Where where do we where do we end up going with that? And that's kind of a big passion of mine, kind of a bit of a journalistic background. And so I sort of brought that to the game and it was a bit of a novelty in being a bit disagreeable. And so that's kind of what I'm known for in the MSK space, I guess. Perfect guest for this episode, Dave. Yeah, no, it's great to meet you, Jack. And um, I guess, well, I'm not a chiropractor. I mean, I, I, I'm coming up to... 30 odd years in terms of teaching um, all of it in the sort of chiropractic education in some way or another. Um, I think I probably had a couple of years out, but most of it in, in that sort of realm um, and sort of multiple institutions really. ACC as it was not very long ago, I was there for quite some time from the 80s, late 80s to the late 90s. And then I went to Australia for a bit and and then came back and taught at another chiropractic college. And, and then I came back to the ACC and I've been there since it's gone through its teaching degree, awarding powers, and, uh, and uh, also we've just gone through REF and so on. Um, and now with some new PhDs, a PhD program coming through. So, so I've been through quite a lot of change there. And I suppose I've been, in 2015, I got involved in social media, uh, a friend of mine sort of introduced me to it because something had come up um, uh, uh, through another route where I'd criticised some chiropractic in the profession, which had led to a sort of tsunami of, of emails, some of which were very odd um, and uh, somewhat aggressive. And And this this friend of mine introduced me to social media in order to get a voice out of there. And, and from, from that point on, it sort of snowballed into a into a, a, a um, you know this tsunami of of um, involvement of lots of people and, and I ended up sort of on threads with you know 450 comments and whatever and it was a, it was a bit of a baptism of fire for me in that area so I've been involved in that on and off ever since I've probably calmed down quite a lot I, I think I've I've now curated the totality of that cohort that don't like me, I, I guess that there's nobody else to sort of add to that cohort now. So that's sort of calmed down on that front. And and there are people that, that think what I do is worthwhile on social media and other ones that don't. Uh, but I'm not a chiropractor. And I guess I've been, you know, just caught up in this sort of general phenomena around social media outside of what we're going to talk about today, which is this Somebody once came up with the term truth decay, I think, which, which is this sort of modern phenomena of the algorithms that polarize viewpoints on social media. And, and I think we've just got that small version of that going on in our respective professions. So, so that's where I come from, academic at the ACC University College and, and director of research there now, uh, privileged to be. And uh, I'm really happy to be on the podcast. Hopefully it can add something sensible. So you you both got your kind of battle scars, I'm guessing, from, I mean, social media, we might end up landing on the discussions which go on in social media. They're such a vehicle now to have these conversations. And as you said, there seems to be a kind of a growing phenomenon of just kind of calling out uh, falsehoods or bullshit, you know, where whether it's through memes or through intricately designed images and doctored photos. And I suppose we could just start by, what's your thoughts about that? about the kind of brute ridicule, I suppose, of ideas which on the face of it might deserve ridicule because they can't be sensibly engaged with. Or is that fair? I mean, it comes back to what we talked about before. Is, there, is, is, is a meme 
mocking someone's thoughts and beliefs about how to treat the cranial rhythm or the fascia, is that the right way to go about tackling or engaging with these ideas? And what are your general thoughts about that kind of calling out of publicly calling out of, of bullshit, either directly to clinicians or into professions? I think it, it, uh, for me, it depends on a few things, but one of them is, is definitely what your, what your goal is. Um, and, and that that's not to be, and, and, and that's me being a bit agnostic as to exactly what your goal is. You know, I'm saying it matters to the style that you have communication, but I'm just meaning that it's something that really your goal can vary from education uh, to changing minds, to entertainment, to getting something off your chest, to, you know, it's like that, that's going to vary your style. Um, I think there's a place for most types of it, and I'm somewhat of a free speech absolutist when it comes to that, including into professionally. I think that they, if you're trying to change someone's mind, then ridicule being your first option seems mad. Um, and, and and certainly seems a wild one. Um, I think that the social media is generally the, the the accepted public square these days. I think it's set it's set to be a really unusual version of it, which involves more shouting than talking. Um, I think that people don't in, lead with a question mark enough, very genuine question mark. You know, it's something that I'm seeing as being quite provocative. But I'm I'm someone who's got far more questions than answers, and as someone that has very genuinely. Uh, inquired and continues to genuinely inquire about some of these things rather than being dogmatic over my opinion over them. But it's just that those questions can feel very intrusive to some people who attach their identities so embedded and intertwined within certain uh, theories, concepts, uh, even their professional uh, badges, that then to criticise the thing, to play the ball, not the man, is is something that unfortunately is seen as a clumsy tackle because they are the ball and that that is something that they've been so integrated with that they can't seem to see that as being when someone tries to be accurate and calculated in their criticism or even ridicule of certain things uh, that they they feel personally slighted by that and feel so deeply offended that that's something that should be silenced rather than countered. Um, I think that when it comes to the different thresholds with what meets the threshold for criticism and then what meets the threshold for ridicule, I do think are relevantly separate. And there, there are certain things within our game that, that we should separate that off on. So uh, criticism is something that can, depending on how much you want to split hairs, should be across the board. You know, I just think what on earth shouldn't be challenged and critiqued and reshaped and that in the right company, then even if you're in 99% agreement, then what is this, what is the, the intellectual pursuit if not to to look at that 1% now and again. Now, if you overindulge that 1%, it seems that the narcissism of small differences can really hold us back if too many people spend time nitpicking that. However, that is a very different, I think, threshold to what should be then or could be then ridiculed. And that's where it gets really difficult. And I, I'm someone that is, you know, I can't help but re reflect on my passion for humour and for quite, quite for satire. You know, and for, and for, you're a funny guy, Jack. Well, I try. I mean, I'm not good at it necessarily. <laughs> I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just meaning that it's what is. I, I, I'm terrified of a world in which can't we can't mock each other, and we can't, you know, we we can't lord satire, and and so that's why why shouldn't that in the right place be part of professional culture as well? So, so what is that? What is that threshold point? I mean, when when does it become? When does the claim become bizarre enough that it's open to ridicule, and that would be a that would be a kind of warranted stance to take, versus 
that's a really interesting point and the literature's contested there and let's, let's let's talk about that i mean how do you judge that and it would seem to be in the eye of the beholder to some extent so what what do we do and how do we find the right spot maybe dave first and then jack you can follow up yeah just listen to jack there i mean I, my my initial experiences were i think some of the the initial things that um i heard i mean one of them was that that set me off on this whole journey around social media and and doing the things that I do in terms of critique um, was this idea that I think during one of the early Ebola outbreaks in Africa, there was a, there was a suggestion that chiropractic adjustments would be the sort of way forward. Um, and that, you know, and, and so for me that, that as a scientist, I think what, what struck me first of all was just a complete incredulity really was, you know, it was incredulous about how this would go on and being a being an educator as well i think i um initially went at it with with sort of well you know that have you thought about this well that can't possibly be true because you know so on and so forth but but i think what it uncovered in the end was a realization that the people that were perpetrating these ideas were were not really open to some of the approaches that you've just articulated um, so it really depends on who you're talking to in many ways. I mean, I think you're right that that um, Jack that, that we, we there should be humour, there should be a place for good critique, um, and, and I think I probably did indulge in mocking to some extent, probably for quite a long time before before I realised that one the problem with that is that you lose the audience that are silent that are watching, and I think it's important to keep those guys on on board, uh, and two you know, you, you sort of gain respect by, by, by being measured if you possibly can. I mean, inside, you know, my, my amygdala is going bonkers, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, you know, my, my, the privacy of my own room, I'm, I'm shouting at my partner or, or, or the screen, but trying to sort of keep that um, reasonable there. So I think probably means that in the end, um, the thread that's looked at afterwards means that, you know, people might, want to listen to you again. So I think there is something around that. But um, yeah, I don't think mocking for me really ever worked. And I try to avoid that sometimes. But, you know, sometimes I think you can throw humor in there, particularly with um, particular individuals that you've probably battled with over the years. And I think you can do that. So there are gradations of wrongness. I mean, we can be really on the fence about whether or not, I don't know, sitting is a predictive factor for back pain. I and mean, we could find literature arguing potentially either point, perhaps it's a bad example, but the Ebola and, and manual therapy hypothesis, and that's quite a different beast. And and so, so Dave, you kind of saying, well, you know, ridicule perhaps isn't the best approach and you lose the, the audience or at least the, the claimant. What would be your position then to intellectually and honestly engage with that. And is it the case you'd sit down, I mean, sit down metaphorically with that person and, and talk about, I mean, it seems so ridiculous that I don't know where you begin to start. I mean, the presumption that the assumptions underpinning the claim in itself, just, they just seem absolutely bizarre. So Jack, Dave, what do you, it's all real saying it. Don't, <laughs> how did, how, what does that look like in practice? I mean, I, I, I've, one of the big ones there is that it's relevant that Professor Dave Newell would be professorial in nature some of the time, plenty of the time, compared to 
little old me gobshite on the internet, right? So there's, there's roles and responsibilities that are relevant to that, as well as who's making that claim. So is it a really passionate chiropractic patient that's been duped, that's then promoting like, well, what might, you know, chiropractic helped me with all sorts of different things and they've over-associated the reduction in their skin lesions to the chiropractic care that they'd had, right? So it's just a random person on the internet that said that. Therefore, to counter it is to give too much weight to uh, an argument. Whereas if it's someone of repute in, 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 in a profession that's, that's exerting influence or is well-associated to a body that is supposedly credible, then then that's a, a different thing. And, and therefore, for me, you ridicule the ridiculous. So what is ridiculous? What meets that threshold? I'm not going to duck that question. The biological plausibility does then play a part. You end up in this situation where you can't help but then think, right, what, through what mechanism are you implying that? And if you're needing to go to two or three different contentious things on that chain, then I'm afraid when it's something as serious as Ebola, you're just not invited to the argument. I'm afraid that's just not the case. You, you, there's, there's several different steps that need to be taken for you to make that sort of claim in this case because of the seriousness of the matter. The opportunity cost that comes from doing something like that, this is what we see all the time. Like, well, why not try it? What's the harm in trying it? The harm in trying it is, and it's an extreme example, but it's one I have to go back to, is that the same example really with homeopathy and cancer. And we know that that is an area in which people that are in distress, that have got massive amounts of needs and are desperate, will go to that. There's other areas in paediatrics and stuff of which we know of as well. But let's just, let's sod it. Let's go paediatric cancer, homeopathy, right? What is the seriousness of that? We know that there's no seriousness of the the, the, the actual homeopathic remedy that's being implied to it, but the act of someone taking that instead of the chemotherapy that they might need, then of course that's relevant. And so, well, why not both? It's like, well, what is the logic that someone is, uh, is seeking out when they're doing that? And so th that's why I've gone for a few things there. There's biological plausibility. There's also what is maybe being missed out on if we do that thing instead of the other. And also what chain of mechanisms are you implying to suggest that that is reasonable? And then unfortunately, there's this other element, which is what Dave touched on before, is that if there's a repetitiveness to someone, if there's the fact that they are not, they're saying the same thing as they said last week without accounting for this relevant critique or question that came the week before, are they just ducking or hiding or failing to account for this other side of an argument, right? He who knows a little of the other side knows little of that, right? He's, he's, I've just butchered, uh, sorry, a, a John Stuart Mill quote that I love that I've managed to still forget and, and butcher, but essentially this idea that if you fail to know and recognise the opposite point of the point that you're making, then you're going to not sharpen your own point. It's, it's just embarrassing to me that that's the case. And so when someone's repetitive on it, even if it's not that ridiculous a claim, but they're just failing to account for the other arguments, then for me, again, that, that opens itself up to ridicule, mocking and satire, or at least an exasperated position, which you ended up in all over the other day. That wasn't particular mockery. That was just a bit of a flabbergasted, you know, why not? What's wrong with that emotion? It's a completely reasonable conclusion you came to. But, but in terms of in terms of cutoff points, just one one more point until with what Jack said there. In terms of cutoff points, it's interesting you were saying, and and I think it's a relevant and well used argument around, you know, if you're if you're making claims that are encouraging patients to avoid evidence based care for very unevidence based care, then then I think you know that is important. That's a very important point, along with biological plausibility and so on and so forth. But I was just thinking when you were talking, if, if you know, in pediatric cancer, homeopathy was being used, uh, and that's, an, that's, a, that's an, a nice extreme example there, Jack, well done. But, um, you know, the, 
if if that homeopathic remedy is being used adjunctively to chemotherapy or whatever it may be, are 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 we looking at a different cutoff point about how we approach that claim? So, in other words, what you, you sort of alluded to the idea that it depends on the context of the claim, you know, and 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 how and and, and the the practicality of, of of what's then being done in practice based on that claim. And uh, I think uh, I think you know because I would say, well, if you're doing adjunctively to chemotherapy, or whatever, then it still makes no sense to me. It still lacks in biological plausibility. It's still this, that, and the other. But I can sort of see why you're doing it. Well, they're staying hydrated. <laughs> you could even make a case for that. But I think what what I what I suppose would would say is that it, it's not if they are these aren't uh, being these aren't treatments being administrated in a vacuum to people that aren't uh, the organic complex beings that we are, right? So then you've got what has been what has been the argument made for either of those things because those are incompatible worldviews. So if if it's being used adjunctively, but this is a a, a family that is then um, is then hedging their bets between science and nonsense, then you are worried that the fundamentals of the, the argument being made for their evidence-based treatment aren't necessarily being embraced in such a way that they could then be overindulging pseudoscientific things that could compromise their care. Now, imagining, though, this was something that, that could be, they, they are, you know, why not? Uh, because they are compliant and completely engaged with it, but why not? Now, it's it's very contentious and complex, of course, as soon as I sort of raise this next point, but I might not have said homeopathy in that instance, but I might have said prayer or the religious spiritual nature of, of, of other treatments. And that's a completely reasonable thing. I'm not a religious person, but I can comprehend the fact that many of my friends and colleagues that might be would have chemotherapy and absolutely be praying themselves and for, for and they're having their loved ones and their church do so. And th- there is a compatibility to that as long as it's not intrusive and compl- complicating. And, 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 and it's, the, it's the lack of separation that, that I think worries me about that. Whereas the, there is something more obvious and, and, and we've kind of come to it in a secular culture that we've we've offered that appropriate separation there that I think that some of this pseudoscience sort of encroaches on in a more pernicious way than even religion would. Mm. I think, I mean, there's lots of things there. I think the first thing is about the biological plausibility. And if we just sit on that and recognise that there's a difference biologically between water having a memory and all that jazz. And let's go with the Ebola adjustment idea that, you know, there's kind of, it seems to be a different terrain of nerves, spine, kind of immuno-endocrine stuff like magic. I mean, you, 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 you can create a story around how manual therapy to the back, to the spine, has some central effect, la-di-da-di-da, 25 steps down the chain, your immune system can fight off Ebola. That seems less ridiculous, but still ridiculous, than water having memory. So, so even within, we kind of take a little cookie cutter and just cut out those two, on the face of it, seemingly equally bizarre examples, that even within that, one seems to be more right or more plausible than, than wrong. And so... It's gradation, isn't it? The claims yeah. which, which we're engaging with on social media with colleagues aren't usually water having a memory, but they're more about kind of just the linkages around anatomy and bodily systems. That the fact that there's a liver that seems to hang off the ribs with some ligaments, the fact that the ribs lie close to the spine, the fact that the spine lies close to the fat, lies close to the skin, 
and the practitioner's hand is on the skin. I mean, that is a slightly different set of linkages than the water having memory. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed the same thing with, um, there's an area of chiropractic which is called functional neurology. There's controversy around, you know, exactly what this is. Some some people are one of these spectrum just consider it to be, you know, the, uh, just a rehashing of subluxation in the brain rather than the spine. And, and others feel that, you know, it's about functional training of the nervous system. But some of the proponents of this use in, in their lectures and whatever, and, and certainly one of the main proponents who probably not invented it, but probably uh, pursued this originally, first of all, ha- have this um, approach where, you know, we all know that there's so many neural pathways on, on diagrams that you can essentially connect anything with connect, you know, anything else. So, you know, depending on what pathway you want to go up, you can connect the toe to the Broca's area, you know, um, and, and, you know, you could say, well, you know, uh, rubbing your toe will allow you to articulate better and you could make some... It's all connected. It's all, it's all connected. It's all connected. So it reminds me again that there's this biological version of that. And so you're right that you can, you know, if you've got those ligaments and things hang off and so on. So there, there, is, there is a plausibility to that in some sort of way. Um, and, but... And particularly to... Sorry, to a patient, I mean, getting into, I mean, I don't know, kind of the the, the function, the molecular function of water with a patient is harder, but it's much more plausible to a patient just, you know, to pull out the old anatomical chart and say, look, here's your liver and it sits close to here and it da da da. I mean, on just on the, to the face of it, to a naive person, it would seem, uh, seems to make sense. I can't help, I can't believe that this is where we've ended up. I'm about to defend homeopathy slightly. <laughs> There are gradations of homeopathy. So the memory of water, because you've taken it down so far molecularly that then these are, it can't have had a, any presence of a chemical that it's saying, right? But that's the extreme of that because you could end up just having it watered down enough so that there is a molecular presence. And that, that, that argument is quite compelling for some people because it's this idea of it being challenged by a lesser version of the stimulus that would otherwise be poison and, and stuff. And I think there's not that dissimilar in many ways to what you're saying. I, I do know what you mean meaning and and that there's something biomechanically that that seems at least that the story is less fanciful than homeopathy but I think fundamentally it's that the mechanism of effect is is not uh, that different in that of course the best counter to it is the fact that the body is so adaptable and has much more evidence to suggest it can adapt around these these differences in such a way that in both occasions physiologically through homeopathy and mechanically through these uh, examples of, of biomechanical uh, say subluxation theories or equivalents with regards to functional neurology it seems to me being that that we would end up having to use argumentation and as soon as you're doing that as soon as they're making a series of leaps of faith, especially in, in sequence, then I think it doesn't get many of those. In fact, in fact, it seems appropriate to, to ridicule it, especially when it's such a fringe belief. And I think that that's where I'm not, I'm not suggesting that those lines are easy to draw and the context is absolutely important for that. And if someone is especially uh, someone of seniority, then jump into mock and ridicule of someone who's a, a relative new grad that's maybe been over-influenced by a certain school of thought or or a patient even. I've seen that happen before where a patient's been misguided and misled that's been jumped on by a clinician, sometimes thinking that that's a fellow clinician clumsily and, and, and being a bit aggressive with mockery and stuff. I, I, I cringe 
so much at that. But it's just that in these instances with regards to viscera and fascia and all that sort of stuff, it's just that I do end up over the to- over time having a more and more concern that we're probably pondering and frowning a little too much at this and entertaining it in such a way that concerns me when realistically these things are for me they're far closer to what we were mm. saying we were comfortable ridiculing than giving them credence in a, in a sensible msk environment dave do go sorry um it's occurred to me that we're, so we're, we're talking around a number of different issues here and i'm wondering whether the issue around whether the claim is true or not really concerns us is it the truth of the matter that is concerning us or is it much more to do with, as Jack alluded to earlier on, the consequences of believing something? So, you know, Oliver and I have talked a lot and we're involved in several initiatives around looking at, at um, contextual effects and so on, you know, and I would bring this up, but, you know, we talked a lot around the idea that stories are important you know, stories are important in clinical encounters. We know that patients, you know, there are plausible stories for patients that, that make no, that, that aren't plausible for scientists. And those plausible stories may be part of a potpourri of elements that add up to a, an encounter that really is effective. In that particular case, then we're not actually that concerned about whether the claim is true or not, because the claim ends up with something that's positive. In that instance, then what you would be, have to be careful to be doing would be that in your, your articulation of that claim should be different to different stakeholders. So, you know, your patients are a very different stakeholder and to a scientist, to a payer, to a government, to, to you know, a, a guideline group or whatever it may be. So, so the degree of whether it's true or not is really then dependent on who you are talking to, because in some instances you may have positive outcomes, even though the claim is not true. However, where the consequences of following that claim, such as avoiding chemotherapy, such as dependency, such as uh, you know a, a bunch of other things that the patient may be doing or not doing that is going to degrade their healthcare or degrade their health, then I, then I think that becomes much more important. That's an ethical issue, isn't it, around that? So, so what, what are we, you know, it's interesting to explore what we're actually trying to talk about here. I, mean, I think it's a really good distinction. And I think you're saying if the outcomes seem to be right, who cares about the mechanism and the kind of the truth claims within the mechanism? The only thing I'll say is that more often than not, the claimant is defending the, me- I mean, it's not good enough that there's just a coincidental outcome, but actually the, the outcome has to be due to this particular mechanism. So it's not, the, the, these claimants aren't saying, I'm going to do this thing. It, it, uh, you know, I'm using words like liver and homeopathy and kind of CSF and Ebola. But really, these are just, these are, this is metaphorical speech to describe some interaction between me and another person. And then there's an improvement in their health outcome. The claimants often, the, the, the mechanism is important. I mean, how they get there seems to be crucial for a bunch of reasons around identity or just the fact that that is the way things work. So I think that I accept your point. If it does seem to work, then we're less interested potentially in the mechanism. Clearly that is important to refine the, the, the intervention, but it seems to be the debate isn't just about whether or not it works, but it's got to work in a certain way. 
and they're defending the implausible mechanism, almost the outcome is second. I mean, they're less concerned about whether it works, but actually no. And that just to say also, the mechanism also supports the technical skill, which allows them to access the mechanism and influence the mechanism for good. And that also seems to be important to those individuals. I uh, yeah, I, I love both those points, and, I, and I, I'm at risk of, of of spoiling them by not adding to it, I guess. But I think that what what Dave's saying there does does ring true in that the the conclusion or the, the sort of tr- the pursuit of truth and stuff that we might go for academically, which I care deeply about, but fundamentally that isn't the it shouldn't be the central thing when you're with a patient. You know, you know, there between the patient and client in, in clinician interaction should not be some sort of uh, end game sort of conversion or persuasion of, of, of a major sense of of, of self changing uh, experience. I think, but what what you've added to there, Oliver, is a good one where. We know that that is the thing that people are most bothered about. And I quote a student of mine from last year, which fascinated me that they said it. They said, you have an irritatingly stripped back MSK practice. And I obviously asked, invited more about that, especially over the word irritating, because I'm very irritating, but it's just that I think she was meaning specifically about my practice. And so what she meant was that it's just that the, there is... The, she noticed I was interfering so little with the patient's um, behavior, movement behavior, particularly, she was saying, like there was things that she almost felt compelled to correct that I wasn't correcting and and that she watched that over the course of time. And this was in her late weeks of this placement. And it's one of the things that I've noticed that I use when I'm in discussions with people about these things where I feel that no matter what I'm hearing about in this healthcare community, I feel like I can account for how you're getting patients better. I'm not I'm not here to doubt your results. It's very difficult to. Imagining we were all uh, qualitative and quantitatively knowing our results and, 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 and being able to offer them up against each other as if we could have some sort of parity or league table on that. A nonsense idea. But let's imagine we did. And for the sake of the fact that I can't prove better outcomes than you, I'm going to say that you get good outcomes, but I'm also admitting that I do as well. And you don't have any evidence to the contrary of that. And my patients come back too, right? So then if I can account for how you get people better, can you do the same for me? And sometimes they'll take me up on that and say, well, you're a relatively charming person, Jack. And people, some people might even like your accent. They're silly too. But also you keep people moving. And the central part of that is that you're then uh, making them feel reassured. They feel, they feel that you've got some authority in such that they trust you. And so when they do answer, I then say, well, yeah, but I admit that that's why mine are getting better. I think that's actually central to how mine are getting better. Why did I not need what you're doing? And sometimes, especially if this is over a beer, and I'm not putting a microphone under their face, and I realise the difference in that being relevant, is that they they then sometimes do say that to some degree, the tape, the needles, the manual therapy, and some of the suggestions over the mechanism, perhaps they were a bit for me. But maybe I'm not as confident as you in some of this, Jack, and that maybe that's where I needed those extra things because my patter wasn't quite as strong. And so sometimes they have sort of opened up on that and and admitted that that dressing is for them. And I find that interesting. I don't then think that that's a gotcha. I think that's fascinating. I think that's something that we need to work out. I think we need to recognise that sometimes these things are the case. But I think, unfortunately, these things do leave deeper scars. You know, on a consequentialist ethic, I think that sometimes this does compromise people's sense of self. I think that people do end up, they they resolve that shoulder problem that they saw someone for, but they thought they needed that third party and that third party wisdom that then was quite a complex 
complex narrative in such a way that when their contralateral knee starts hurting three, four years' time, they, they don't necessarily trust the adaptability of their own body or the ability for them to sort of overcome that through sensible application of similar strategies given. They can't help but defer that to said expert for that complex theory again. And I think that that's something we can't underestimate, although it is very difficult to test. Yeah, the, the idea that, go back to the idea that the patient might um, be not involving themselves in an evidence-based approach because they bought into a, a, an unplausible idea, you know, so on and so forth. Is there a, an equivalent in, uh, in the practitioner themselves in the sense that if a practitioner is buying into a mechanism that is not true, that is, that, you know, it may be implausible, on the degree of spectrum we've talked about, but let's say it's it's not true, that in the same way, one of the downsides, along with all the downsides that I agree with, with Jack saying there, is that they also limit their skill set and their scope and their intervention in such a way as to not intervene in ways that are going to be beneficial to the patient. In other words, they leave out a whole bunch of stuff that they should be doing because they're relying on, you know, an implausible idea. So in a way, I guess that's a that's another downside, if you like, of of of, of sort of particularly if it's a, a very monotherapeutic paradigm, you know, where you know the, the 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 implausible mechanism maintains and embeds and drives the practitioner to very narrow interventions that, that in the end are not actually the, the, the width of the interventions and the complexity they could be doing that actually would have better outcomes. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I think, I think part of it, one thing we've touched on is to what extent should colleagues, healthcare professionals hold these beliefs? I mean, to, to, you can clearly think about or hold any sorts of beliefs you like in your private life, but when it comes to one's professional life and having these ideas and then act or clearly acting on those ideas. I mean, I suppose I want to get to, it seems to bother us, doesn't it? For some reason, people thinking certain things, which just seems to be silly, untrue, implausible. It has no material effect to our lives, but there's something that just irks us about all of this. And, you know, we, we don't, you know, I, we're not some kind of thought police and oh, you can't think that and that's not true. But there seems to be some moral obligation to to either inform public colleagues or the individual holding the the belief. And why are we bothered by any of this? What's motivating us to even care about what colleagues think? And if we can point out clear kind of causative directions to harm, if it's not harming anyone, is it okay to think some of this stuff and to espouse it? Perhaps to students. I mean, I'm obviously leading leading there. I mean, j just quickly there, because I know Jack's got. I can see that he's got a whole bunch of stuff to say about this. But um, the, I think um, it's it's. No, I'm going to let Jack go first. Go on, Jack. Uh, you shouldn't ever do that. I've always burst into say something. It's not never any good though, Dave. <laughs> so you should have definitely gone for it. But I think what 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 I could what I was perching on the edge of my chair for there is that. I've got a hell of an anecdote on it for one, uh, which I'll share in a minute. But 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 definitely for me, I, I find myself really interested because I hear that a lot. Like, what is it about it that irks and stuff? And I don't actually have that emotion. It's funny. I'm I'm 
excessively hyper-liberal with stuff like this. In fact, I really am pleased that the world is as bizarre as it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm infinitely fascinated by difference and, 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 and the overwhelming similarity as well, of course. But I just mean like, for me, properly... Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm going to pick it up. Fascinated is different to being tolerant. I mean, you're not tolerant of the homeopathy and the paediatric... Are you fascinated by that too? No, I'm fascinated by that too. Right? You know, I, I, I took a picture in the Trafford Centre the other day of this booth, which was a palm reading booth, right, that was charging more than we charge at the clinic, right? And it was just that I, I'm, I'm genuinely interested and intrigued. And to some degree, I'm fine with the fact that that exists. Uh, should it exist in healthcare? Should, you know, it, it, it's, I think uh, the Hippocratic Oath is relevant here. It's first do no harm. How well we can define harm is another question. And I, I could, uh, I don't want to go off on one on that because I think uh, the devil definitely have a better answer. But I think um, what I was going to say in terms of, a, of an anecdote, though, is that when someone has a privately held belief, it's just about trying to make sure how we can manage and place those boundaries as a community of practice, right? As as intra-professionally and interprofessionally within MSK, let's say, how can we make sure we get the boundaries of that appropriate and sensible so that there is variety and we can make sure that things don't get stagnant, but also it doesn't end up going into the nonsense. So for example, years ago, I worked in a, in a, in a department of which there was a there was a little gym at the back of the of the of the building that then uh, was seldom used, but there was a storeroom at the far side of the gym that really rarely got used, like where just filing cabinets were of old notes and stuff. But then the 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 paper towel dispenser was one of those automated ones, and you go into the gym in the morning to to put things in the right place, turn the lights on, etc. And about half a dozen paper towels had come out in the night, right? And so I then said, look, we need to get this sorted. It's such a waste of paper every morning or whatever. And 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 uh, the physio assistant I was working with at the time said, well, you know, you, 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 know, you probably could be a, a ghost. I said, I think it's probably just the machine's not working. So it's a bit narrow-minded of you. Did you not believe in ghosts? Anyway, I then had a conversation with her about her belief in ghosts and the ghosts she'd seen in her life and that I needed to open my mind a little bit. And I, to this day, I've never worked with a better, more personable and, and, and brilliant TA, uh, really, than, than that. And she, but he had I have walked in on, on her with a patient saying that, you know, well, this coldness feeling that you're getting around your knee, might that be a ghostly presence? Have you ha- had your house looked at for ghosts, right? If she'd, have, if she'd have taken that personally held belief and made that clinical, then that's something I would definitely have something to say about it. And so it goes back to what Dave was saying about truth claims and stuff. It's just like, there's probably room for that and other variations on that. But it's just that it doesn't get anywhere near the threshold for you to be talking about it with patients as if it's a relevant clinical variable. And I, and I think that we can navigate that if we're honest with ourselves. Um, and that, 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 that there are gradations, of course, from, from, from ghost to fascia. I get that. But to some degree, th- th- I, I think that we should have a fairly high bar for what we perpetuate. I think, yeah, I think... I agree with that. I, I think, again, you, you, you're alluding to the idea that it's harm to the patient that's really important here. Uh, you know, because if they were alluding to ghosts, then, you know, that, 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 you know, that may have some impact. And so the untruth there is its impact on somebody else, not necessarily the untruth that the person is holding. I think also we've got to, in terms of irksism, I think that's a word, or irksomeness, the... And I feel the same thing. I mean, I feel a rising sense of, as I said, you know, just an angering, even angering credulity in a way around some of these claims because you think that's just bonkers. You know, how can you even think that? Where are you coming from? And I, but I think 
all three of us have to remember, along with many of our colleagues, is that the way that we, the methods that we use to interpret the world are very different to many other people. In fact, probably most of the population. If you're trained in any sort of way in some sort of scientific thinking, then you, you like with most of the skills that you learn early in life, and then you, you sort of get to middle life and you think you've always felt like that. You've always thought that way, but you haven't. You learned it at some point. And, and I think, you know, we forget that at the way we approach understanding the world is one of, what should I say? So it's, it's a sort of sense of logic. It's a sense of being able to judge the plausibility of something by diving into a vast uh, historical area of knowledge that you already have about how things work. And you forget that you got that. So, you know, you, you, if somebody says to me, well, I don't know, eating peanuts can affect the mitochondria, you know, I, which it presumably must do at some molecular level, but I, you know, I'm, I'm trained in molecular biology. I know how the cell works in many ways. And it would make no sense to me. But that person who is articulating that idea would have none of that background information. So, so for them, the truth that they are trying to articulate fits into a world that is far more denuded than the world that I'm looking at. And therefore, I can see where the flaws are, but these people can't. Do you, Dave, do you think that that applies to some of our fellow professionals then in the game? Like, well, that's one of the things that I worry about because I, I recognise that with regards to then the separation between professional and public to some degree, although it already makes me a bit uncomfortable about how sort of elitist that feels. But then when you take it to like an us and them within a professional context, then that that does worry me a little bit, even though I kind of find that, find myself, I think I'm worried because I agree in a sense, but I just wondered what your thoughts are. And are we saying that, some in our profession just aren't critical thinkers and, and is that okay? Is that what you mean? I think that's true. I think that I think some of the profession aren't critical thinkers. I think I think that 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 there are there's always going to be a, a certain proportion of people that that reach those uh, you know those high jump bars of of assessments and uh, competencies that allow them to be registered as professionals, but they don't necessarily pick up on this critical thinking. So I think there are people like that in the profession. I think also, you know, people that perhaps end up or are exposed to those critical thinking ideas and, and that knowledge base that would allow them to perhaps see the flaws in a particular argument because they can, they can go into an arena of knowledge and see where it doesn't work. You know, there's a narrow knowledge that some other people have. They, they, people that even pick that up, I think some of those can end up being non-critical, not because they don't have the capacity to be critical or they never picked it up, but because they fall in love with an idea and they fall in love with that idea in much the same way that somebody becomes converted to a particular religion. And I know you brought this up and it's a, a difficult area to talk about and it's somewhat controversial, but I think the parallels between religious conversion and some of these ideas are not coincidental and they're not incidental. And I think that there, there are similar sorts of emotional uh, trajectories that people take when they end up with these ideas. So, so they, they almost, they dump criticality or they, or they box it in some sort of way in order to maintain their belief in this idea because that belief in the idea is, 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 is part of their demeanour, is part of their personality. Ollie, did you feel like a religious heretic to 
do what you did recently? <laughs> I, th- I mean, I did. I think I think that we need to touch on how to untangle because uh, clearly some of these ideas, claims, theories are just embodied by the claimant. They're, they're, to, to be able to untangle the mechanism of the pericardial release from a sense of being an osteopath. I mean, these things are just welded together. And so the minute you're attacking pericardial release, you're also attacking the the validity of osteopathy, the person's osteopathicness. And so yeah, their the career, I mean, a whole sense of kind of person, personally located kind of values. There's that, but also, Jack, coming back to what you were saying about kind of gradations of expertise. I mean, you didn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, within the profession, you've got public and professional publics are naive, don't know anything, professionals know lots. But then, you know, the vaccines was a great example of professional colleagues that suddenly were able to utilise their BSc honours in osteopathy and the four lectures of immunology to begin to articulate an argument around vaccines. And Dave, I think we spoke around the height of the pandemic, I think. And and certainly within osteopathy, I know in chiropractic, because Dave, you and I both wrote separate papers, essentially, to our respective professions about vaccines and manual therapy and adjustments for COVID, all that stuff. But again, it's coming, I mean, this may be slightly uh, off a tangent, but about those same colleagues that lack those critical skills being completely unaware of the lack of expertise they have in vaccinology, but seem perfectly happy to have a discussion on social media or Facebook, arguing against vaccines based on osteopathic philosophy and osteopathic science from 1912. I mean, for them not to have to see the flaw in that position, again, I'm not sure how to approach that and so yeah what do you make of all that i admired both your work on that in that direction and because it was so genuinely approached from a sense of 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 empathy as far as you could i could see both of you really trying to comprehend in in the respective works there to say look i'm trying to meet you on this but i think that this is why it's both dangerous and foolhardy i think that to some degree though i read some of it and and it got hinted to in in your stuff but i think that a lot of that is just post-hoc rationalization that people are are, are pulling for tools uh, in their professional lives to to justify a personal belief that they feel either obliged or keen to latch to also just a, a contrarian a contrarianism that of course i sort of am sympathetic to to some degree um in 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 instinct but but in this instance they were just obviously going down and just to say and it's particularly Potentially, those individuals are drawn to osteopathy and chiropractic because it sits slightly outside AHP. There's a kind of openness, which is less apparent in physical therapy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have a ver- we have our versions of it. I think that one of the things I'm keen to do is to make sure I'm not trying to absolve my mother profession of some of that because fundamentally the, there is, often, and also we have the danger as, as physiotherapists of sometimes offering medical legitimacy sometimes to so, so some of these very fanciful claims that, that I think are incredibly similar. Although you're quite right, I think it does, it does select out alternative medicine a, a little easier than the other two. So I think that's a, good, a fair point though. But circling back to sort of our, the beginning of this conversation, which was how do you address these claims? Is there something emerging from our conversation which now suggests that, that really there are, there are claims that are coming from different psychological places? You know, there are claims that are coming from 
a sort of pseudo-religious conversion point, you know, where I'm, you know, I'm, I, I was, I, I was brought up in a, a religious background, but, but sort of discovered science at 19, it didn't make any sense further and further. So, but, you know, in terms of, if I was trying to sort of persuade a, a you know, a, an evangelical Christian that the resurrection and the ascension didn't happen because there was no evidence. My approach to trying to counter that claim would be very different to somebody who was, I don't know, arguing the historical basis of the ascension and the resurrection or the biological plausibility of of people coming back from the dead would be a very different... It's coming from a very different place. And so in terms of addressing how you approach them and whether you can, I would say that the former is pretty non-approachable. And in that particular case, you know, from that religious conviction, it's pretty pointless, I would say, trying, trying to do anything. Whereas if you were able to identify, you know, along the spectrum towards genuine curiosity, you know, based on, you know, um, potential plausibility, you know, and the, the minutiae of a scientific idea that could be possible on the fringes of science, then, then you're looking at a very different sort of conversation, and potentially one where you might come to consensus. I think that one of the th- one of the only ways that you'd be able to tease out those three example variables there that Dave said is is further questioning, wouldn't it? So it, it, th- that's one of the things that's really useful. If you if you're charitable in the first instance, you would be able to tease out the differences between those and work out whether or not someone is. You know, beyond beyond help or beyond conversation, if you are trying to pursue a change, but I'm, I think it's one of the things where depends on what they've you know, if they've presented their opinions, say in full or with some sort of sense of their own sense of completeness, then that means that then they are already ready for whatever your take is. Whereas sometimes, if it's that unfortunately that some people um, make a, a a passing suggestion and they do get then jumped on, ridiculed, mocked, etc., and therefore. It's a it's a cartoonish version of their comment that is being lampooned. Means that then they are going to feel really vulnerable to it, and that's why yeah. it's not right that that should be a prim- I don't think it should be primary in our professional culture. Uh, and I think I do get concerned. You know, back, back to the start where you were saying, Ollie, about how it, you know it, there is there is it is trendy, it's clickbaity, it's perfect for TikTok reels and and, and shorts that now almost have that uh, effect to them that you can get in there quickly mm-hmm. to just take the mick out of something and something are worthy of, of ridicule but if that became the standard unhealthy because it's not it's, it's gonna get people wrong and, and not give people the right to reply but if it's something that's held in 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 circumstances where someone is being quite devout and that fundamentally the ridiculous is uh, is worth ridiculing then i think that's where it could it could remain but i think what what, what dev was just saying was great where the only way we could tease out the detail because the detail matters and he made a great point as to why it matters and how you might approach it would be different is usually through the act of questioning and that uh, and sometimes even um you know it can carry plenty of humor in, in, in questions too and so that these things aren't necessarily separate mm. what was your impression sorry ollie what was your impression of where your initial that initial um confrontation or, or, or issue with you sat you know on that spectrum in terms of palpating the pericardia i mean where, where was that coming from was that was that sort of more towards curiosity or was it from a it was kind of ridicule i mean the the, the, the it was it was just exasperation, I think, you know, to to, to have the, the initial comment was about um, pericardial palpation and then 
a series of comments which were in support of that. And then when seeing other members kind of really question this claim, it was just, well, just it is the case. I mean, it's just simple fascial release. It's really no different to, you know, stripping the Achilles essentially is the same as, you know, releasing the heart sac. And just they were surprised that we were even questioning it and not only surprised, but just bothered by the fact that we were, what do you, what do you mean? It's just standard osteopathic stuff. And so my response was, you know, I think I put a gif of the of the person giggling, spitting out their coffee. And then, you know, osteopathy is a legitimate, ethical, evidence-informed healthcare profession. It's just the incompatibility between the claim around pericardium. And so that, so that in terms of whether or not, I mean, listen, it had 300 plus comments on the group. It's right. got a couple of podcasts. I mean, people are now, we're now talking about this. Yeah. So certainly in that, in that, in that particular case, yeah, I don't, you know, I boot out the group, which is absolutely fine, but I guess yep, it spurred yep. a discussion. Was it pseudo-religious, do you think? Was it, was it, or it sounds like it was just uh, completely uncritical. It was just an acceptance of a historical idea. It was, yeah, it was just an acceptance. This is how it is. And this is just, and, and for you to question it in itself is a problem. Both parties, both parties are considering each other ridiculous, right? So you were saying from what you could gather, they felt the same way about how bizarre it was. However, only one side of that decided to silence the other. And, 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 and I'd, be comfort, I'd be confident that if the tides were turned and the dials of power, let's say, of administration on said group, I know you enough to know that that's the last thing you would have done to someone challenging you. And that's, that's relevant in terms of this, isn't it? Is that the outcome of this and, as to, and where it intersects with, with culture is relevant here, isn't it? When it does become pseudo-religious and ideological and the fact that it's just that these things, uh, and, and in the chain of, of screenshots I've been sent as well, is that, the, you know, I can't think of a phrase that's come up more often than safe space yeah and i think well, clearly uh, when we're the three of us and others like us will be embarking on this pursuit about being fascinated wanting to understand their position clearly we've got a reputation so our inquiry is often taken as an initial oh Attack. it's jack again just kind of taking the piss or ollie's just <laughs> gonna snag it off or dave's just gonna be grumpy and dismissive i mean it's a, in a way we've kind of we've built ourselves a bit of a rod to some extent where our genuine inquiry or pseudo genuine inquiry purely to try and have a friendly conversation about something is now in the context of us just having a reputation for, for these things. Yeah. And that, and that can be, uh, that can be a, uh, a weight around your neck really in many ways. Uh, I, I mean, one of the things I've noticed is, is that, you know, initially over, and I'm not sure it's true, but I think it is. I mean, I'm falling to the same trap of just a completely implausible idea without evidence, but, and it's anecdotal and it's observational, but I've noticed that on at least one of the sites that probably contains more of a, uh, a spectrum of chiropractors who have ideas that range from positions that that they know that I find completely implausible to positions that I would support and everything in between. That's where I would initially, perhaps two or three years ago, two years ago, post something up that would generate quite a lot of, you know, um, feedback that would generate, you know, people's outrageness, you know, that I should even post that up, you know, and how dare you do that on the site? This is about chiropractic and not about the ABC to people that were interested and so on. 
I have noticed that there has been a a lack or, or a withdrawal of any comments whatsoever. So it's almost like a you know I've been sent to Coventry to some extent, sort of on social media, and and I think that that you know I I I speculate that there's been a, a sort of coordinated effort um, around around doing that, and so in that sense, what I've done is I've closed down my own influence through through those those initial conversations and posts and and uh i'm you know that upsets me i'm disappointed about that because i think it hasn't served either me or anybody else very well i think it's one of the things that was interesting in the early-ish days of social media i wasn't there at the start of it really with the interprofessional stuff but certainly one of the things that was refreshing about twitter relative to the others is that it was free from obvious censorship is that a lot of this was going on where but certain comments critical comments could be deleted by sort of the person that posted them etc that's always been a vulnerability of something like facebook whereas on twitter it really was a public square and that they, they especially in the early iterations of it there were no primary it was no there, there was no uh, um, uh, precedence on the algorithm for the original post and that things were then met and that therefore something that that could be done there wasn't the like button there uh, necessarily and so you know these things were a bit more open open fora um, and, and that was a kind of helpful thing although it had its obvious downsides as well the brevity meant that things were more curt than they needed to be um, and, it, and it really isolated some people into not really wanting to and, and nuance sometimes got lost so it had its downsides but that lack of censorship was certainly one of the reasons why Twitter was quite useful for that fertile discussion whereby things couldn't hide and that therefore the really big offenders especially those that were monetizing nonsense they were thriving on on facebook and early instagram but they would really struggle on twitter and they still would struggle on twitter and do struggle on twitter that fatigue is on both sides so i often see comments you know i i probably respond to five percent of the bizarre claims on social media I'll look at something. So, I, I, where do I start? You know, you know, you respond, and then the replies come in, and you're looking at your phone, and it, it's it's not always a comfortable feeling, and it's quite distracting. Certainly, when I was on holiday, you know, with with the pericardial gate, but there's a silence too when I'm just like exhausted. I just, you know, it's the same old arguments, these circular arguments. There's no intellectual kind of parity in terms of it works as it just works. Well, why does it work? Well, just to work. I mean, you don't really get anywhere. So I feel fatigued too. And I just can't be bothered with that. Likewise on Dave and your account, your interlocutors yeah. don't want to engage either because it's just, oh, just leave Dave to it. And so everyone seems to, to lose or just, it seems to squash discourse. Yeah. I worry about that. I think this is something that, that, that how else, uh, we're just as vulnerable to echo, creating echo chambers then as anyone really, aren't we? But as I said before, it's relevant who kicks who out. I think and, and the, the precedent there, I think, is, is relevant. You know, it's not fair for us to always uh, be be worried about that that both sidesism thing. And and also, it, it, it does make a case for for questioning rather than than ridiculing. And why we need to make sure we're not thinking and excusing some of the worst behaviours in that direction that creates a, a culture of mockery. I think that's that's silly. Uh, but I think what what I've found over the years is I, I have engaged naturally less. You just end up being sort of busy and I've got many plates to spin and children to keep alive increasingly. So that, that's, that's, that, that makes a difference. But I think as, as well, I have, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good for anyone for me to engage as much. I actually have um, a, a lower tolerance these days uh, to, to stuff. I mean, it's funny with the pericardium stuff. I'm fortunate to just, I just stay out of such groups, but also even within, 
certain things that might crop up where um, someone puts, I'm really struggling with this patient. Uh, they've got a frozen shoulder. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. They're doing everything right that's within normal guidance. They're like listing what would be best practice. Is there anything else that anyone can think of that they might do? And then the comments that are underneath it, this happened a few months ago. Um, you know, I, you know, what, what's the, you know, have you considered the contralateral flat foot? Because there were some pictures. Right? There's some pictures of this person demonstrating their range pre and post and stuff like that. And it, have you con considered that contralaterally if you notice they're overpronated? Um, and I, I, I just, for me, I don't make that relevant a distinction between that style of nonsense and, and what you're describing. It's just, what, what someone needed to say to this otherwise young professional about this frozen shoulder is that don't beat yourself up on it. That's an incredibly and famously stubborn condition, one of which we, we, we know irritatingly little about to some degree in terms of why it behaves in such a way with some people. But the timeframes that you're describing are such that you're doing all you can and you need to assure them of these timeframes. But instead, we then went down this line of, 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 of pseudo-biomechanical reasoning about the contralateral foot uh, that is a red herring that if that clinician and then that patient was to take that on as being some sort of relevant other thing to try, then I think that they could have inserted anything into that, right? It's like, of course, you know, why not? Could We could go back into the start of this conversation about, well, why not as well as? But fundamentally, it's just that the, the, the rationale given for why, because obviously me and others asked, well, where do you come to that conclusion? And then they draw out this you know, six degrees of separation to the, to the foot and hallux or whatever. It was just like, well, no. Unfortunately, at this point in time, you don't qualify for this conversation. You're not. You're not an adult in this room. You know, this is this is that the bar. The bar, to some degree, has been low enough for us to unfortunately mean that people like yourself are able to clear it in healthcare, and that you're then perpetuating what is a nonsense, you know, extreme step when really fundamentally that does compromise that best practice of that care of that individual. And so, I'm just giving one there that's not. For some people, that wouldn't even qualify as nonsense. So never mind pericardium. I think you were incredibly patient. I think you you, you come at it with genuine inquisitiveness that I think is, is is impressive at this stage, considering some of the face some of what you're facing down. I'm just admitting to you where I am is that I'm exasperated by that example. Never mind yours. So I am opting out and self-censoring to some degree on stuff like that because I feel that, the, that that's why I've gone down the systemic, the structural, trying to make a safe haven for all different professionals of an MSK bent to be able to say that I don't care if you're in the two percent. Some would argue, some devout physios will argue that well, you're just speaking about the two percent of carers that are worth the, the time obviously i don't believe in those statistics but i'm just meaning that that for me has become why i've decided to go towards systems operations and, and multi-professional working celebrating the successes of our shared community rather than denigrating the others in part because i think there are some lost causes but we've got to smoke them out by celebrating what is good and then yeah occasionally we might shine a light on um on, on the nonsense but fundamentally some of them are just they're just carried away on a theme I think that's a brilliant point, and and it chimes very much with with where I've ended up on this journey from 2015. You know, because I think that initially, uh, you know, I you, you know we talked about wisdom before. That there is a sense of, of sort of growing understanding. I think um, a, a little bit more than I had at the beginning. I think at the beginning I was attacking the wrong things, and and. Or, or I was attacking things that, that were pointless attacking because they were never going to change. They just separated people. They caused animosity. 
they caused separation, they caused, diff- you know, they caused people being upset, including me. And, and it was pointless because it, it, the, the effort in doing that really didn't result in any sensible and, and, and whole, you know, wholesome outcome. And, and it's a bit, using the analogy of, of, of religion again, and I apologize to anybody out there who, you know, who is religious and I'm not attacking religion. I've just lost a thousand listeners, Dave. Yeah, nice exactly. One. I'm Thanks. not re- attacking a religion at all, but you know, um, and that's a whole series of podcasts that we should do. But anyway, um, it's a little bit like I, I, I went from trying to argue with huge incredulity with say a committed Christian about the ascension and resurrection from a scientific viewpoint, which is, which if you think about it, is pointless in the first place. And, and sort of berating and highlighting the, the lack of and the failures of that way of looking at the world, particularly as a professional, as Jack was saying, to learning and actually curating now quite a different view of some of those individuals, which would be around, if you take the Christian analogy, looking at the huge positive impact that that Christian outside of their beliefs have on their local community. You know, that, you know, that they, 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 they might be doing all sorts of amazing things that, that I don't do, that, that I would consider saintly almost, you know, and beneficial and socially responsible and positive to lots of people around them. You know, they may shine as an individual, and yet they may contain these belief systems that, that I know are scientifically implausible. And so, like Jack, really, I've, I've come to the point now where I'm beginning to focus on the positives that are, that are inherent in the chiropractic professional viewpoints that are not controversial, such as great clinicians who deeply care about their patients, who have fantastic skill sets, even though they don't recognize it around language around support around safety around reassurance around all of those things we know that are entirely uh, evidence-based and 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 sort of concentrating on that and saying how you know wonderful that is rather than concentrating on some of the, the the crazy implausible ideas that they may have now having said that and i'll finish there are a sort of radical group if you like a small percentage where that doesn't hold that they are destructive and uh, and and have massive effect on the legitimacy of the whole profession. They're the bad apples in the barrel, so on and so forth. And it, it doesn't apply to them. But but in the, in the vast range of people, I've I've swung towards the positive. And I and I had a recent ECU talk where, you know, I was trying to put over this idea around around context being really important in therapeutic encounters. And instead of sort of saying, well, what you're probably doing is is you know, there's quite a lot of placebo in what you're doing. It came round to what you're doing is is leveraging an incredible number of amazing skill human people skill sets that actually make your patients better. So it was a real swing from the negative to the positive, and I think that's where I've come to. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I mean, that, I was I thought you were going to end on a positive note because I didn't I want to end on a negative note, <laughs> but then you brought it back to the positive note about contextual effects and placebo. Um, listen, guys, I'm looking at the time, and you've been incredibly generous, and you've all got homes to go to and more important things to do and uh, you know certainly for me it's uh, it, uh, you know 
have I made sense of the whole thing? Of course not. But it, I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's been absolutely brilliant. And I, and it's been, yeah, just great sharing it with two kind of colleagues, mates to, to get some purchase on all of this. That's been great. It's, it's been, it's been such a pleasure to, to chat through with you two, but also, you know, uh, what, what you've been through, Ollie is, is a lesson for all of us, but also for me, it's been one that I can't help but look on and think, blimey, if they even come for him, then I think my policy's in a, in decent shape, really, because, you know, I'm someone far more dislikable, far more impolite, far more disagreeable than you, and I'm therefore glad that I've withdrawn a little bit from some of those skirmishes. But it also shows a state of, of where I'm... Um, I, when it's, people say about lumpers and splitters... Uh, you know, I'm someone that is always trying to expand, trying to lump a little more. But to some degree, there is a really relevant distinction for where we should cleave things off and where we should make a stand and we should stick our neck out and say, this is what we stand for. And and, and, and to some degree, if you believe these things, you're welcome to do so, but you're probably not welcome here because we are trying to aspire to this better value. And it might not be a pursuit of a truth claim, but it is a, a style of discourse. It's it's an, it's an anti-censorship message. It's a, a critical thinking, open critique style, style of dialogue uh, that I know you stand for, you both do. And so therefore, if that is something that we can conclude from this escapade is that is that we realise that that's a relevant difference between them and us. Never mind the actual beliefs, but the style of which you then disagree, then yeah, you're in, you're in, you're in good shape there, mate. And I hope, uh, I hope that's something that they learn from. Absolutely. Don't stop doing what you're doing, Ollie. Or Jack. Absolutely. Great to speak to you all. Dave, Jack, thanks so much. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.